Hi, everyone. It is your hosts here. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Valerie. And we're here with our first episode of Born in the Right Generation, where we give you our modern take on classic rock. Today's episode is going to be on one of the most iconic albums of all time, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band by The Beatles. Uh, before we get started, we want to say thank you for listening, and make sure to follow us on Spotify and Instagram. The links will be on our website. We're going to start off by talking a little bit about the history of the album. Um, as we all know, the album was released in 1967, so it comes like right in the middle of their discography. So it's like right after Revolver and before Magical Mystery Tour. So it's like the peak of their sort of psychedelic period, which as everyone should know, that's like my favorite period of theirs because I just, I love psychedelic rock. I love the psychedelic music. I think it's really cool. Uh, Sgt. Pepper is my second favorite album of theirs. It's just that iconic. Yeah, and it is iconic. I mean, this album set so many records and it also influenced a lot of um, future albums from future artists to come. Like, this was um, the first rock LP to win a Grammy album of the year. And it had no single, which was pretty standard for album releases at the time. And it took 400 hours for the boys to record it in the studio, which is in very sharp contrast to their Please Please Me days, which was, I believe, recorded in how many, how many hours again? Like 12 hours? It was like 13, I think. But honestly, like, they did really well on that album too. But this one, you can definitely see because, like, that's part of the reason I just love listening to them because you can really, like, it's very clear to see their progression in, like, different musical styles. And this album just has, I think, probably the most variety of any other album. I would argue that the White Album has more variety. I'd say that, but that's probably because it is a double album, so they could fit more songs. Like, like they were able to fit stuff like Martha, My Dear, and Revolution 9 in with Helter Skelter, and While My Guitar Gently Weeps. So I feel like that's probably the reason it has more variety, but I feel like out of like their standard single albums, Sgt. Pepper's is like the most diverse, because they really just... They fit everything in there, but they made it fit well. And, like, this is... Yeah, it was really cohesive. Yes, it was. Especially because, like, this was one of the... It wasn't necessarily the first concept album, but it was one of the first really big, like, popular concept albums. And it is probably one of the most famous, along with, like... Definitely agree. um, A lot of Pink Floyd's discography, and maybe Tommy, the list that I've read. Those are, like, all the really big concept albums yeah it was it was just a really ambitious project I mean like the the techniques that they used at the time were like really unknown to quite a lot of other artists and you know they challenged the whole traditional three-minute songs that were being made at the time and yeah like I said before it influenced many other albums for example the Rolling Stones uh Satanic Majesty's Request ah that album you know, I haven't gotten around to listening to it yet. I really need to. Although Keith Richards said he didn't like it, and he also hated Sgt. Pepper's. But, like, do I really trust Keith Richards? I love him, but do I trust him? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> anyway, so I think it came at this sort of turning point, right? When, 
I think they started using LSD in 1966, but this came at like a turning point when it became really popular to be using for musicians. I know like a lot of other artists, like artists and writers and people were using it. Who was it? It was Ken Kesey, right? Yeah, it was. He was like starting that whole psychedelic movement in 62, if I remember right. Yeah, something like that. Anyway, so I think that all started, but this is like really when it started to pick up in the world of music. And I think that's really cool that they managed to do that, but also still like, I guess not fade into obscurity or become like an alternative band. They were still do they did it and they still made it popular, which I thought was really cool because it was just a completely new concept at the time. I think this album really allowed them to explore, you know, different just a different style of making music. I mean, they started recording late 1966 and this was when they just finished their last um, tour and they were pretty, you know, fed up with touring at the time and they wanted an outlet to express their music that they wanted to make and experiment with different styles. And I think Sgt. Pepper's is really just, you know, a product of that. Exactly. Like, they really did try to get away from that whole clean cut image, which they did by growing those disgusting mustaches. Like, you know, we're going to discuss that later. But Okay, they weren't disgusting, yeah. but I, you know what? Okay. I feel like something everybody should also know about me is that I have a hatred for facial hair, like on 99% of people. Yeah, I don't agree. I, just, I don't agree with her take on that, but we'll get into that later. How did he... Paul originally, it was like Paul's idea, right? I think I have this uh, lyric book by Hunter Davey and it features some of Paul's Paul's illustrations of like what he thought, like what he wanted the band to be. I feel like Paul did quite a bit of sketching. Like everybody talks about John and his little drawings, but like Paul did a lot of the concept work for um, the albums. I know he was also the one who did the Abbey Road sketches as well, but uh, my book has a bunch of sketches from Paul about what he thought Sergeant Pepper should be. Uh, he saw it on those, like, the little condiment packets or whatever they were, right? The shaker? Yeah, yeah. Him him and Mal Evans. Him and Mal Evans. They went to uh, Kenya for a trip right after their last tour. And that was when Paul really got this idea to, like, record as an alter ego band and having, like, freedom to experiment, like, not as the Beatles, like, as you said, moving away from all that clean cut image that they they felt were branded to them. So they went to, him and um, Mal Evans went to Kenya, and I believe Mal Evans got confused by a salt and pepper packet, and, like, one was labeled S and one was labeled P, and McCartney reminded Mal Evans that it was called Salt and Pepper, obviously. And then he made a joke called Sergeant Pepper, and that's where it started. Huh. Yeah, I think I read something about that, but I didn't know, like, the full story. How does one get confused by a salt and pepper packet? I have no clue. That was that context was not given. Well, all right then. But yeah, either way, I feel like the whole album was mostly Paul's, like, it was his concept. It was his idea. But I feel like they really came together for this album, which I say about a lot of albums, especially Abbey Road. But I feel like the way it takes place in the, or where, where it is in the discography, I've always said that Rubber Soul is mainly uh, John's album, but... Uh, Revolver was really like Paul's album I feel like that was those were the two albums where each of them did the absolute most with all the songs that they wrote they were all great songs 
But I feel like this one features both of them pretty heavily. Like, you can definitely see that Paul had more of an influence on it. But I think definitely if you, li- if you listen to the songs, you can definitely hear that both of them, like, played a really big part in writing them. And especially also the double vocals. They do that a lot in this one. So speaking of that, why don't we move into our song-by-song breakdown of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. So now we're going to move into talking about each song. So we're going to go song by song through the whole album. And as always, we're going to start with the very first song, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Um, And so I feel like the Beatles were always really great at doing album openers. I know I love Back in the USSR as an opener for the White Album. I think it was great. It was really like upbeat and fun. And I think this one, especially as a concept album, it really works because it's very it's straightforward. It's simple, but it's catchy. And so, like, you know, they're they're here to perform. And I think that really, like, whenever I listen to it, I like to think that I am at the concert. I think it really does a great job of transporting you to that atmosphere. Um, and, of course, the transition between this and the next song is just amazing. Yeah, it's very clean. It's it's really, and I really like how um, the Beatles produced um, this song, too. Like, the whole, like, background of that song where you can hear, like, fans of the band, like, screaming. I feel like that really sets the mood and the atmosphere, like you said before. And it really makes you feel like um, you're right there watching this band perform. Yes. So the very beginning where like they're uh, like where you can hear them like sort of setting up their instruments and like testing that out. I think that definitely does add to the atmosphere. I think it's, it's just really cool. I love the opening. This is one of my favorites. I mean, this is my, yeah, again, this is like my second favorite album of theirs. So I just, I really, I do love the opening for this. I think it really just kicks it off in a really fun way. Yeah. And it, it goes into a really fun song too, with a little help from my friends. Like, it's such a wholesome song. Like it has such a wholesome message. And what I really like about this is that the story behind it is also really sweet as well, because it's a really great demonstration of John and Paul's support for Ringo and just their friendship as a whole, because I'm not sure if anybody back home knows this, but Paul and John actually didn't tell Ringo that he was going to record the vocal for this song while they were working on it because they knew that he'd get nervous because Ringo, obviously, as a drummer, he was pretty insecure about his voice. So I just really like this story because they all supported him and they were really just really there for him to um, encourage him, especially when he was hitting uh, that high note at the end. Yes, like Ringo is he's my favorite Beatle. And I think this one was just really sweet because he really did get by with a little help from his friends. Um, Like. I think there's a story in the Hunter Davies lyrics book where he he was actually present at the recording of, or at the sorry writing of this song. And I think it was just really sweet that they were trying to sort of find this song for Ringo. They were they like would write it for his range and his abilities. And I think it just really fit because Ringo has the type of voice that's like it's it's good for those upbeat happy songs. And I think I think it, it just works really well. And the whole Billy Shears transition thing, he used that later in his album for, what is it? I'm the greatest. I love that song. When he was like, yes, my name was Billy Shears. People sleep on Ringo solo songs a lot. Everybody should stream Goodnight Vienna. Um, 
anyway, <laughs> I do think that this, this uh, with a little help for my friends, is one of my top 10 Beatles songs like of all time. I just, it's really sweet. I think the lyrics definitely speak to me. Like, especially, there, it's one of the songs that I, I, I just can relate to the most because, you know, I get by with a little help from my friends. So I think, I don't know, this one, I just have like a connection to it. Also, it is sung by my favorite Beatles, so. I, I definitely agree. One of my favorite stories about this song, too, is that the, the original line, like one of the original lines was that, uh, what would you do if I sang at a tune? Would you stand up and throw tomatoes at me? And Ringo essentially just said, no, I'm not singing that. So they changed the line. No, no, yeah. no. It, it's, it's hilarious. Like, just imagine if that was an actual line in the song. Uh, it sounds kind of ridiculous. So, yeah. I don't know. There's like, I love how he always performs this song live, though. Like, um, there's this one video where he straight up, he messes up the lyrics. I think because um, he was like trying to introduce everybody right before he started singing. And I, I don't know, I just, I love that video so much. Cause like, that's just such a Ringo thing to do. Like he's, he just wanted to introduce his band, give them the credit and he somehow missed the cue to his own song. But I don't know, I just love this song. It's really sweet. And yeah, it's just, it's very wholesome. Although the next song, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds is like a completely different vibe. Yeah, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds is like full psychedelia. And, you know, I know that it's not about LSD, but you can, like, if somebody says it's about LSD, like, you understand why. Like, the imagery there is just, and the whole vibe of the song, like, it's very trippy. It's definitely, like, one of their trippier songs. Yeah, I feel like, um, even though technically it may have been most, like, the idea came from Julian's drawing, I feel like they weren't not on LSD when they were like actually writing it. I feel like a lot of it was inspired by that sort of landscape. Yeah, it was definitely inspired by Julian. I think it's a mix of both. Like the Beatles, they were they were very smart. They were they were genius songwriters, Lennon and McCartney. And so I feel like they may have just like slipped that in as like a little inside joke. Because I don't believe it's not about LSD. But also I know that it's about the drawing. Another part of this song I really like is just, I like the, I really like the intro, the guitar riffs, and I also really like the imagery, like just the lyrics of the song, they're really fun to just think about, like when I listen to this song, I usually just, like I can picture everything, so when he said, when John Lennon said, picture yourself in a boat on a river, I did, because it's just that type of song, like the picture they paint is really cool here, so Again, this is another one of my favorites off the album, even though pretty much every song on this album is one of my favorites off the album. I don't know. I, th I think it's a really cool song. I think it was nice that John tried to do a song, not really for Julian, but like about him and his picture. It's just really cool. And then we get to the next song on the list, Getting Better. Oh, dear. So... <laughs> For me, this is, yeah, this is the controversial one with the infamous verse. It is. I feel like, yes. So oddly enough, like everybody associates John with this song, even though Paul is the one who's singing it. But this is like, this is one of the examples where they have like the sort of double vocals type thing. So like you have Paul going, it's getting better all the time. And then John going, can't get no worse. And I feel like it's very, we can work it out in that sense where Paul's got the upbeat, happy, 
um, type lyrics. And then John comes in with the darker, sadder lyrics. And I feel like that happens quite a bit. Um, but of course, I feel like the thing we have to talk about this song is like the third verse. Yeah. Um, those infamous lyrics. <laughs> yeah, I really want to talk about this because oftentimes in the media, when you hear stories like John was a wife beater, John was an abuser, most of the evidence that they give it includes this line from getting better. And I just really don't think that that's fair to John. And I really think that's a way of spreading misinformation because I personally, you know, I don't believe that John was as many claim a wife beater. And I look to the Testament of both of his wives to back up that claim because Yoko has claimed that John never abused her and Cynthia has said that John slapped her once when they were teenagers and immediately apologized and never did it again. You know, obviously I'm not excusing those actions, but it's a far cry from what people say that John was a wife beater. So yeah, I just really don't think it's fair to him to take these lyrics and say that he was an abuser. I feel like the biggest problem with using song lyrics is like, like evidence is that it's a song. Like those are song lyrics. Do you really think Paul is a guy named Rocky Raccoon who went and like got shot? Like, no, he's not. It's a song. Like you can't take songs as snacks because it's it's a form of art. Like, yes, maybe he was inspired partially by real life, but also it wasn't necessarily him confessing that he did beat anybody like he, cause he didn't. And so I don't know. I feel like the number of times I've heard people use those lyrics as like proof. Whenever I say, well, maybe here's the thing. He actually didn't beat his wives. Um, like they use that. And then it's just so confusing to me because you can't just use song lyrics. as proof of that. Ugh. Yeah, I definitely agree with what you're saying here. I mean, John Lennon wasn't a perfect human being, and he wasn't a saint by far, but he was, you know, he had a lot of flaws, and all of his actions, they can't be excused, like the way he treated Julian, for example. But he wasn't a wife-beater by far, and it's really sad that people make him out to be. Exactly. Like, yeah, he had a lot of problems, but... I don't know, seeing people spread false information by and like basing it off of a song lyric is just, it can be frustrating sometimes. So the song itself, I think, I actually do like the song because for the most part it is, it's pretty upbeat. It's a very Paul McCartney song. Like most, all pretty much all of his songs on here, I think, with the exception of maybe a couple, are generally pretty like upbeat and happy. They're very sweet, what John would call granny music, but I think it's, I don't know, it's just, I do like the song. It's not my favorite off the album, but it's it's a pretty good song as far as they go. Yeah. And also, funny story that I came across when I was researching this. John accidentally took LSD uh, just before recording this song, and then Paul had to drive him back home, and then he took acid with John as well. So I just came across that. I thought that was kind of funny. What was it with rock stars, like, accidentally taking LSD, though? Like, I feel like that happened quite a bit. Like, I feel like Pete Townshend, was, Pete Townshend said something about the Who getting slipped acid or whatever at Woodstock. I can't remember exactly, but you should look that up. Anyway, uh, moving on to the next song, uh, Fixing a Hole. 
This is one of the songs apparently Paul said that was an it was another one of his odes to pot, like got to get you into my life. I looking at the lyrics, I'm not exactly yeah. Like looking at the lyrics, I'm not exactly sure how that fits in. But this is one of the like for me, I guess. Don't like no don't hate me for this. Like this is for me one of the less memorable songs. Like it's still memorable, obviously, because I've listened to this album a lot. But it's like not it's like far from my favorite song on the album. It's nice. It's like it's like a very typical Paul song. Yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, you know, to be honest, it's really hard competing with songs on this album. Like, you know, for example, A Day in the Life, like that's an amazing song. But I would agree that it is less memorable. Yeah. Yeah, and another thing that I found out when I was researching was the BBC banned this song. Because apparently they thought it was about heroin and it was promoting drug use. But to be honest, it really wasn't. It was just, you know, like you said before, it was an ode to pot. All Paul really wanted to do was, you know, let his mind wander, be more creative. Heroin, huh? Heroin's really interesting. I don't think any of them started, like, taking heroin. Well, at least... It wasn't during that time. I know that John was taking heroin, like, the early 70s, I think. But... Like, other than that, I can't yeah. think of anyone else. Ringo, maybe? I'm not sure. No. But, yeah. not, not Definitely not in 1967. That was pure, that was like LSD right there. That's, they were doing LSD and probably marijuana. Um, but not, I don't think they were doing heroin that early. Anyway, so let's move on. Yeah, uh, I agree. The sixth track on the album is called She's Leaving Home. And this, to me, like... I started to realize it's probably one of the most underrated songs, like, in their entire discography. I think Paul McCartney has always had this knack for just writing really pretty songs. Like, they're very, they all have, like, a very, they're very soft. I think his voice is perfect for it. And this is definitely one of them. Yeah, like, here, there, and everywhere. Yes, Here, There, and Everywhere, uh, For No One, I Will, like all those types of songs, are, they're absolutely gorgeous. And so I think this definitely fits in with that. I feel like this track could honestly, like it would fit in with like on Revolver, I feel like, if it weren't for John's part. Because I feel like the Paul's part of the song definitely could fit in with Revolver with his songs like For No One and Here, There, and Everywhere. But I think John's part really distinguishes it. And like, it says it solidly at Sgt. Pepper's where it should be. But I do think this is one of the prettiest. This is probably the prettiest song on the album. And everybody should listen to it more. It's highly underrated. Yeah, and let me just add that the strings on this song are absolutely gorgeous. They really add a lot to the whole ethereal atmosphere of it. Yes, every time they use, like, a string quartet, like, I feel like that is why. That's also what set them apart is that, they didn't just play, um, what is it? Like, they didn't just play their own instruments. They would bring in other musicians and a whole bunch of people to go play. And I just think, I think that's really cool, the variety that they had. But I like how, like, this album, you have so many different songs already. You've got, like, an upbeat Ringo song. You have a really cool psychedelic song. You've got sort of another upbeat Paul song. And you got one of Paul's drug songs, and now you have one of Paul's pretty songs. So I feel like like we've already got so much variety, and then the next song also. And it works so it well so together. I think this is probably like the craziest part of the album is that it fits together so well. Because all the songs on here are really different, 
but they all, it works. And that's what's really cool. So moving on to number seven, being for the benefit of Mr. Kite. It's one of the weirder Beatles songs, per, like for me personally. It, it feels super, super chaotic for me anyways. Yes. <laughs> I remember what the first time I listened to Sgt. Pepper's and I came across this song and it kind of scared me. It kind of freaked me out because I just really wasn't expecting what they were going to do. Like the whole circus vibes. Yeah, You know, it came across as, you know, it was really different. It was really weird. I wasn't expecting it to happen. So the first time I listened to it, it really freaked me out. The second time I listened to it, you know, it's better because I knew it was coming, but still. Yeah, I feel like definitely the opening, like the organ, that was a little creepy. For whatever reason, like the if I had to sum up the vibe that this song gives me, it would be like an abandoned circus, which I think is honestly what John was trying to go for. But like, it just it feels it's like haunting like circus melody but haunting which is a really weird thing for a song to be but it worked yeah it did like like uh what is, uh, it? What is it and paul was inspired by a poster right to write the song yeah 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 it was um if i can remember correctly he was filming a promotional video for uh strawberry fields forever and he saw a poster in a shop and he got the inspiration from that which i always thought was pretty cool huh yeah, that's another thing. I'll get into this more later, but I do feel like like knowing that Strawberry Field Forever and Penny Lane could have been on this album is like that hurts a little bit because those are also two of my favorite songs. But we will get into that in the next section. Um, I think they sang this song, uh, being for the benefit of Mr. Kite. I think they sang it in Across the Universe, the movie, during like one of the trippy LSD sequences. Oh, did they? Um, I've never they watched that- it. It's, it's good. I think probably because the song itself, like they're already telling a story. So I think that's why the movie worked out so well. But I do think they sang the song at like um, a trippy LSD sequence. But anyway, uh, moving on to number eight. Oh, this is a George song, Within You, Without You. So George and his Indian music is always a fun topic to talk about. I feel like I like this song more than his, uh, like the one that's very similar to this on Revolver. I think it's Love You Too. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I think I like this one better. And I do think like, this is another like big genre change for them. Like George just comes in with his Indian music because he was like super obsessed at the time. And I think it does work. Like it fits together, it fits well on the album, but you can definitely tell this is a very George song. Like, I don't think there was much influence from the other three. Um, This is definitely, like... Yeah, there was actually no influence from the other three at all. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it was just George and a bunch of Indian musicians, and they recorded the song together. Okay, well, Ringo, I can understand. Like, Ringo is mostly their, like, support. I feel like Paul and John could have stepped in... And like, then like, hey, you could tweak this or do this. But I do think overall, it's a really nice song. Um, again, it's far from my favorite George Harrison song of the Beatles, but it is a nice song. It definitely reflects to like what he was doing at the time period. They were all into the transcendental meditation and all that. Uh, I think they went to India like the year after. So I know George was really excited about that. So I just, I do think 
it's a cool song, especially because this is really this song really was just George having fun and you know doing music that he just wanted to listen to and that he liked. All right, so moving on to number nine, this is one of my favorites. Like, I wouldn't say it's in my top ten. It's my. It's in yeah. my top ten. Okay, I would this say. is definitely. Yeah, I definitely think this song deserves a place on this album. And I know some people say that it shouldn't, but it's just really wholesome. It is. And it's really sweet. It has a really good message, I think. Um, and it just brightens the mood. It, you know, it's just one of Paul's, another one of Paul's granny songs, maybe. But it it's really sweet. I like it. You know what I find really sweet about this song is that... Um... Again, I read this in a Hunter Davies book, and he's like the official biographer of the Beatles. So he actually, um, Paul's father turned 64 when this was released. And so uh, Hunter Davies was there when uh, Jim McCartney actually listened to it for the first time. And it was just really sweet that Paul was doing that. Although, oh, that's so cute. Yeah, it was, it is really cute. But apparently, like, Paul had this song written for some time because um, I watched this documentary once about, like, the making of Sgt. Peppers. And these two guys were talking about how they had been in the Cavern Club back when the Beatles used to play there regularly. And, like, whenever the power would go to, go out, Paul would sit at the piano and he would start playing. And uh, one of the songs that he played was When I'm 64. And so I just think that's really cool that he was like that he was able to write that stuff at such a young age and um I guess just how he was like he was just that talented it just blows me away yeah I definitely agree I mean Paul wrote this song when he was 16 and if that isn't a testament to Paul's talent as a songwriter then I don't know what is and what I also find pretty funny about this piece is that it wasn't meant to really be you know taken very seriously at all like I think George Martin called it a kind of a jokey piece um but I really think it belongs on Sgt. Pepper's I think it adds a lot of it adds a lot to the album and like I said before sure it might not have have been as experimental as groundbreaking as some of their other songs but it's it's just really bright and uplifting and I really enjoy it a lot and fun fact, when George Martin actually turned 64, uh, Paul actually sent him a bottle of wine, which I thought was pretty cute. That is sweet. All right, so moving on, our next song on the list is Lovely Rita. It's another song that a lot of people tend to sleep on. And I think it's really good. I think George Martin was actually going to cut this song off the album. He didn't want it, but... I guess Don and Paul fought for it to stay because, I don't know, I I think this is a really good song. It's another song by Paul. You don't really take it seriously. I think John and Paul do another thing with the mixed vocals on this one, which, again, they do quite a bit uh, throughout the album, and I, I think that's really yeah. cool. Yeah. Also, apparently there was this woman called um, Mita Davis, and, you know, after the song was released, she actually claimed to be the inspiration behind the song because... She said that she actually gave a ticket to Paul because she worked as a meter maid. Uh, but actually, Paul said, you know, this never happened and that it was just something that he thought up. And so I thought that was an interesting story behind it. 
And also another fun fact I was uh, I found out when I was researching was that actually Pink Floyd actually visited them while they were recording this song. And apparently they were just all in awe of, you know, the Beatles. They really looked up to them, which I thought was really cool. You know, bands appreciating other bands. All right. So um, 11 is good morning, good morning. And so I'm not 100% sure how I feel about this song. It feels very chaotic. It does. With all like the animal noises and everything. Like, I don't know exactly what to say about it. Like, I feel like this is probably the most overlooked song on the album. Like, if you were listening to this, this would probably be the song that you would skip. I mean, John actually didn't really like this song. He said it was kind of a throwaway song. John said all of his songs were throwaway songs, even the ones that I like. So I'm not 100% sure if I could trust him on this either. <laughs> okay. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, I feel like the thing is, John tended to write a lot of throwaway songs. And then, like, or he wrote songs and then just called them that, no matter how good they were. So... Honestly, I'm not exactly sure. It's it's kind of weird. It's very chaotic. But, you know, it's all right. I think it does fit yeah. in with the album. It contributes, definitely. I think it does its part, so. Yeah, it, yeah. it's very energetic. And like, I, like you said, it was very different. It has a weird kind of time signature. So I really think they were just experimenting yeah. a lot while, while, it was, while they were recording. Yes, I felt like they just kind of threw everything into that last, piece so they could get ready for the ending which brings us to the Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band reprise which again I do love how it sort of not really ends but kind of ends the album yeah I think it's really cool it does again it contributes to the concert vibe you can hear them sort of getting their instruments ready in the background and it's a little sped up and yeah there's not too much to say about it because it is a reprise but it's just really cool and the transition into A Day in the Life is yeah. Okay. And I feel like A Day in the Life, that's, you know, the big song on the album. I mean, there were a ton of great songs, but A Day in the Life is the one that's, you know, the big one. Yeah. A Day in the Life is usually ranked as their best song. Yeah. Because it is, like, it was like their magnum opus. This is, like, what they had been sort of working for. This is, like, the peak. Even though they peaked at, like, multiple points in their career. <laughs> Yeah, it was super, super experimental. And there was this quote from a contemporary music critic that I, I, I saw, I came across when I was researching. And it said that nothing quite like A Day in the Life had been attempted before in so-called popular music. And I think that sums it up really well. I mean, was there any song before A Day in the Life that, you know, was kind of like it? No, they just really went all out. I think that. I read they were inspired by the Beach Boys and uh, the song Good Vibrations, you know, how they sort of they like mix that into multiple songs. But I feel like A Day in the Life is mixed together. Like the parts are so different, but it was mixed together even better. And so it just it manages to form one song with like John and his usual his darker lyrics about people getting killed people just standing and staring and then you have Paul being like I woke up fell out of bed and I think I think that's really cool about how they managed to like mix those up and make it sound like like a proper flowing story and like a real like a song and then of course the ending which is where they just they threw everything the ending chord of the of a day in life like there are two iconic chords in the Beatles' discography, one is the opening to A Hard Day's Night, and 
two is the ending of a day in life. And like you feel it building up and like it yep. heightens the anticipation. You're ready for it. And it's just so cool when it comes. And yeah, definitely. This agree. is why, even though it is not my favorite song on the album, it is the best song on the album. I know. Yeah. I feel like A Day in the Life is, you know, the kind of song that gives you goosebumps and you have to listen to it like all the way through in order to really appreciate it. And I was thinking about, you know, the history behind the song the other day. And, you know, I was just thinking because it was inspired, well, at least partially inspired uh, by um, Tara Brown's death. Um, He was um, an heiress. Yeah. To um, what, what was he an heir to? The, the Guinness, um, yeah, that was it, yeah. Um, so I was just thinking about it the other day, like if he hadn't crashed his car, would a day in the life, like as we know it, actually exist? And I just thought that was, you know, because John was inspired after he picked up a newspaper and essentially saw it, you know, as the headline. And the 4,000 holes line was from the same newspaper. So you know, if John had never done that, would we have gotten a day in the life? And, you know, I just always, I was thinking about it the other day. They made a day in the life, which is a lot of people will say that is their greatest song because it, it is like, technically I would probably say that is their greatest song, even though others like tomorrow never knows may sound more experimental. I think a day in the life, just it is just that iconic. All right, so that sums up our discussion of all the songs on Sgt. Pepper's, and now we are going to transition to talking about some other stories behind it and our overall opinion. And we're back. So now, I guess we're just going to give like our opinions overall on the album and sort of the era in general. So for me personally, I think Sgt. Pepper's was one of their most iconic eras. Um, the outfits are iconic. And as much as I hate to say it, the mustaches are iconic, no matter how ugly they are. Like, I feel like... Well, okay, that's wrong. Uh-uh. I am just going to put my two cents out here that that's wrong. I didn't think that the the mustaches were that bad. I mean, I don't think they were anybody's peak looks, but they weren't as bad as you were trying to make them out uh-uh. to be. That's all I'm saying. George and Ringo were able to pull off the mustaches flawlessly because they both looked good with facial hair. Paul McCartney and John Lennon did not. I, I It's just, it's weird. No. Like, okay. Sgt. Pepper's John doesn't look like John. He just looks, he looks like someone else. But I, I know John changed looks quite a bit. And it, this look wasn't it. And neither was it for Paul. Like, Paul, I can admit, He's very attractive, but the mustaches were not a good look. The mustache was okay. It was okay. I am not going to stick my neck out there and say it was a fantastic look because it wasn't. Meg Beardy was a fantastic look. The mustache wasn't, but it's okay. He didn't look bad. It makes me feel like vomiting. No, okay. That's an exaggeration. I feel like like your opinion shouldn't be taken seriously because you have this discrimination against facial hair you just said it yourself in the beginning listen it's not as bad as someone like say robert plant's mustache or john paul jones like their mustaches were like we're gonna we're gonna talk about that a little later 
I'm gonna I'm gonna save my thoughts for that statement for another podcast episode. But I also have strong feelings about that. Their mustaches are like a low look. I feel like Paul's mustache and haircut. I once said he looked like Post Malone, and then I was like attacked repeatedly for it. <laughs> but I remember that on Instagram. Yeah, yeah, I was attacked on Instagram for stating that Paul McCartney and his Sergeant Pepper's mustache was reminiscent of Post Malone and his mustache. Post Malone was probably inspired by Sergeant Pepper's with his mustache. And you know what? I support that. And I support Post Malone. I really don't think Post Malone was inspired by Sergeant Pepper's. Okay. We can agree to disagree on that. I feel like the mustaches were ugly. And I don't think that they were a good look. And I feel like this is why Magical Mystery Tour was like, like I ranked that above in terms of looks because John had the haircut from How I Won the War and like, that's one of my favorite looks of his. And like Paul shaved his mustache. So good on him. And I'm proud of him for doing that. I definitely agree. He made the right decision until later when he grew the mustache and the mullet, which was literally one of the most disgusting. Okay, we're gonna we're, no, it wasn't, but we are going we're we're gonna save that for later. That's not part of this discussion. But uh I'm just going to say that you have incorrect opinions about uh, Paul McCartney's hairstyle. Yes, it was. The mullet was not bad. Listen, Keith Richards has the best mullet of anybody. Uh, moving on. Okay, we will. So I think if you look at it, most album rankings will rank this somewhere, like this album as a whole in the top three. I know Rolling Stone has ranked this as the greatest album of all time. I'm like, I can agree. I can't remember exactly what they said were the other, like the other ones around that. I think... I think Pet Sounds was number two by the Beach Boys. That's probably fair. Yeah, I mean, I know Pet Sounds, like that whole era was the Beach Boys and the Beatles sort of yeah. influencing each other. I know Pet Sounds and Revolver were really like closely linked. I feel like Sgt. Pepper's, they went above and beyond though. So I do feel like it's fair to rank it above. Yeah. But I think most albums in my other Hunter Davies book, it's like mm-hmm. this like complete Beatles anthology type book. Uh, Sergeant Pepper's is the only album he gives 10 out of 10. Everything else is, is usually is like a 9 or a 9.5 out of 10. I know Rubber Soul and Revolver, I think, got 9.5s out of 10. But Sergeant Pepper's is the only one to get 10 out of 10. Every single Beatles book I've read, they always rank Sergeant Pepper's first. And I think Hunter Davies actually said Revolver was probably like their best album, but Sergeant Pepper's was so much more influential that uh, like for pop music as a whole for pop and rock that like you can't rank any other album in first yeah yeah I definitely agree I mean just everything that they inspired you know and the way that they cha- that album you know changed how music was viewed like music was really you know viewed as you know a legitimate exactly. art form like it could be an art form after Sgt. Pepper's came out and I mean it was just like a really just a staple of you know rock psychedelia uh, you know in britain and worldwide as well and it was pretty influential you know it's very well known amongst all the 60s counterculture so there's that you know influence yeah, as well. i think definitely sergeant peppers meant that for a lot of people music wasn't like the beatles music wasn't just for the teenage girls who were screaming at the concert. It was it was really for everybody. They have something for everybody. And I think that is why they're always going to be my favorite band because they have mm-hmm. that variety. They have a song for every single yeah. person out there. You just have to look hard enough. 
so that concludes our first episode on Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Thank you, everybody, for listening and for supporting us. Thank you to Kevin McLeod for the music that we use. Be sure to tune in next week for our next episode, and we will see you then.